on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it's three chapters. And uh, we've already spent three weeks looking at just the first few verses of the first chapter. But, uh, you know, I've shared with you many times that there are many things in the Bible that I don't understand. Many things that I cannot explain. Many questions of my own that I still have unanswered. Far less the questions that are often asked of me. You might have at one point or another even heard me say that the greatest advantage that I feel that I did when I got my doctoral degree was be able to say, you know, that's not in my area of expertise. Uh, there is one thing that I do know. And I want to make sure you hear and you understand me correctly. I don't know... I haven't been able to find the quote in any of his writings. And no one identifies the source beyond just mentioning his name. But I'm in total agreement with the statement that's often attributed to Mark Twain, uh, Samuel Clemens, who said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. Like the Apostle Paul, all too often I find myself doing things that I know I shouldn't be doing and not doing things I know that I should be doing. And as we begun this series of sermons focusing on the Sermon on the Mount, I've been giving extra attention, extra emphasis during the first three opening introductory sermons on the importance of how we approach the biblical material, how we read and how we hear the words of Jesus. And I've asked pointedly, are we giving proper attention to the authoritative posture of Jesus? I mean, he takes a seat as a teacher of the law. Speaking, according to the crowds, as one who had authority. Being paralleled intentionally by Matthew as a new Moses type. Are we just hearing as the foolish man who built his house on the sand? Or are we hearing and doing as the wise man who built his house on the rock? Looking at both how and why, there are several reasons why we read the Bible. Some read the Bible, first of all, mainly to get information. This is mostly a historical approach to the Bible. Sometimes the attempt is to, to get behind, know more about what Jesus' intent might have been or the intent of the writers. Even non-believers will approach the Bible in this manner. A second approach is to read seeking transformation, which involves seeking to receive from God at a spiritual and devotional and, and even relational level, some kind of, of message. Now in terms of how one reads the Bible, 
One approach is to read from the beginning to end with no preconceived Christian beliefs and no gospel orientation. Mostly reading, speaking mostly about the Old Testament, mostly reading in the historical manner that I just mentioned. But let me suggest to you this morning that I really believe that you and I need to be reading the entire Bible. Not just the New Testament. I remember as a child, and I've shared this many times, my father always carried in his pocket a little black New Testament and Psalms. And I remember one time as a child asking him, well, Dad, what about the Old Testament? He said, well, you know, we are New Testament Christians. Well, the fact is, we cannot understand the New Testament if we don't know what's in the Old Testament. And I think that you and I would do well if we would start reading from the Old Testament as the story of Israel that comes to completion and fulfillment in the story of Jesus Christ. Let me give to you just a few examples. Jesus said in our text for today, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, to, but to fulfill them. Now we're going to come back to this. But look at Luke 24, 13 to 35 with me. I'm not going to read the whole passage. But it's a story about when Jesus, post-resurrection, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus and he comes among two disciples who are walking along downcast. And Jesus says to them, what has you so troubled? And they say, haven't you heard, don't you know what's taking place in Jerusalem? Little did they know they were talking about to the one who knew the most accurately what had taken place. But they're, they're very upset. They tell Jesus. They had, they had had their hopes set. They had hoped that Jesus, who they thought was going to be the Messiah, would do his thing. But instead he was killed. In fact, they even knew that the women had come back and had seen a vision of angels, they say, and had seen the empty tomb. In their words, the death by crucifixion had taken away their hope that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. In verse 27, as an example of how Jesus read the scripture, Jesus says to those disciples, or actually Luke records for us that Jesus there said, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Moses and the prophets, all the scriptures, what's he talking about? Well, I'll tell you what, the New Testament hadn't been written yet at all. None of it. He's talking about the Old Testament. 
and talking about how Moses, the prophets, all pointed forward to him. A second example comes from Paul himself. Uh, I'm reading right now Galatians. I'm reading a book that's going to be coming out November the 13th um, uh, as a part of a, of a launch team for the author. And uh, in Galatians 3, 19 to 25, Paul says that our reading of the Old Testament should be in keeping with how we listen to the pedagogue. That's the Greek word, pedagogue whose duty it was to teach the young man manners and to make sure that they were to obtain the teaching taking place. The word being translated as our guardian until Christ came. That's what Paul viewed the Old Testament as. Our guardian. Now, we can transcend our own peculiar Ways which are usually done in a way such as to foster and further our own beliefs. We can actually rise above that. I've heard people all the time quoting from the Bible to support what they are believing. But they've taken the passage out of context. Or they've misapplied it to something that it doesn't actually apply to. One of my favorites... Is how often I hear people quote Paul when he says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. What's that passage about? It's not about me going out and, and doing my backyard uh, on a hot day because I, I shouldn't have and I did anyway. And I said, well, I can do all things through Christ who'll give me strength. It's not about me trying to get on a weight bench and bench press 500 pounds and say, okay, I can do all things through Christ who will give me strength. The passage is about being content with nothing or having much. And Paul says, I've learned whether I have a lot or I have a little, I've learned how to be content. But we can transcend our own peculiar ways of interpreting if we just look and focus on how Jesus and the apostles read the Bible. We read the Bible from beginning to end believing that the story of Israel comes to completion. It finds fulfillment in the story of Jesus. That's why I am not one of those who is pointing to what's going on in Israel right now and saying, wow, this is all what the Bible says is going to happen. Not there. Can't go there. Some people said that exactly back during the war when Israel first got its independence again. No. The story of the Old Testament the story of Israel finds its completion in Jesus Christ. And the passage we're looking at this morning from the Sermon on the Mount is a very important passage in terms of how we should read the Bible. In fact, Scott McKnight refers to it as the most significant passage in the entire Bible on how to read the Bible. So let's look at what Jesus said. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, 
but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth shall pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. I don't know if it's annoying you as much as it is me, but we're going to go with one and not two. That one cutting in and out is bothering me. So, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's that mean? I think the first words of verse 17 should immediately catch our attention. Do not think. The emphasis of this first verse is on Jesus' claim of fulfillment. And nothing in the sermon, nor even in the story of Matthew up to this point, has been preparing us for the denial that Jesus uses as He begins these verses. If you read the commentaries, you'll find authors trying to fill the gap by postulating the existence of competing groups within the early Christian community or antagonists that have already appeared on the scene. A perfectly good reason for the denial is what we're going to see next week in verses 20 to 1 to 48. Those passages where it says, You have heard, but I say. Verses that can be taken and often are taken as undercutting the Mosaic Law. Though I think you're going to see that view is in fact incorrect. Notice that Jesus negates the view that He came to annul the law or the prophets twice before He even offers the alternative. Fulfill has to be taken in a manner that allows us an appropriate counterpart to annul. He didn't come to annul. He came to fulfill. Now we've noted by the posture Jesus assumed, taking a seat before them, that Jesus is functioning as the role of a teacher throughout the sermon. So his claim to fulfill has to be primarily on what he offers as a teacher. But let's go back for a second. Back to the baptism of Jesus. Matthew records as the very first words that Jesus spoke in his text. An answer to John the Baptist regarding the importance of his baptism. When John didn't want to baptize Jesus, Jesus said, first words of Jesus Matthew ever records, let it be so now, 
For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now the meaning of fulfilling all righteousness has literally been debated for centuries. How and why would Jesus need to be baptized? What can be the meaning of to fulfill all righteousness? Both John's baptism of Jesus and Jesus' submission to baptism at the hands of John. And notice, Jesus uses the phrase, it is fitting for us. Both are identified as having their part to play in the unfolding of God's purpose. According to Jesus, this act of baptism administered and received strikes a fitting opening role for the role to which he is called. It's not the baptism alone which fulfills all righteousness. Rather, the baptism constitutes the opening move of an unfolding sequence designed to fulfill all righteousness. And so the term fulfill relates to the Old Testament patterns and predictions that both Jesus and Matthew says are now coming to realization. To fulfill or to complete means that history has come to its fulfillment in Jesus himself. That is, in his life, death, resurrection, and exaltation, and in his teachings. And instead of abolishing the law, Jesus said his mission is to fulfill. And let me suggest to you, a far better understanding of Israel is not what's happening over there. A far better understanding of Israel is that Jesus became Israel for our sake. Jesus did what Israel didn't and wasn't able to accomplish. And so in His death, Jesus brought about that salvation that wasn't able to be brought about by means of the nation of Israel. That's why we read and understand the story of the Old Testament in terms of how it looks forward to and anticipates the story of the life of Christ. Nothing in history would be the same. Jesus' claim was thoroughly Jewish. Jeremiah 31 31 says behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts the law the Torah came to its goal in Jesus Christ. And so it is that in verse 18, we're given the clarification of the claim. Some claim that because of Jesus' claim that He fulfilled the Torah, we can be done with it. But Jesus says exactly and precisely the opposite. Uh, let me give you just a very on top of the table example. Do you know that the only one of the Ten Commandments that's not repeated in the New Testament is the one about honoring the Sabbath day? The only one. You say, well, 
why wouldn't that be honored? Again, in the New Testament. Well, because Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man. And He took that on Himself so we don't do the Sabbath day. We do what? The first day of the week when He arose. That was the pattern of the early church. Now, let me suggest to you though that I really believe you and I would be much healthier if we would observe once a week at least for 24 hours a Sabbath rest. Doctors have shown that. Do you know that your body doesn't keep up on the six days you work with the oxygen intake you need? I just found that out recently. You need a day of rest to replenish your oxygen levels and get them back to where they need to be. So, Jesus says that everything in the Torah, everything in the law or prophets is true and every bit of it will come to pass just as it is written. The law and the prophets aren't done away with they remain in effect and in an even greater way. Now, this was not easily resolved by the early church. Already, by the time the New Testament books are being written, you can see the obvious tension that's going on. For example, you can look at Hebrews where we're told that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. And in fact, points to the passage that I just read from Jeremiah 31.31. Or what about all the tensions such as in Acts 10 and 11 where Peter as a Torah observant Christian encounters and considers what should he do with the dealing and dealing with these God-fearing Gentiles Cornelius and his household. And at some point even came to odds with Paul over whether he should eat or not eat with the Gentiles. You see there was tension going on. Because they understood that Jesus had said, we need to keep doing what the Old Testament says. But they were struggling with how to work that out in a very practical way. And they had missed a very important part. That they were supposed to be the light to the Gentiles. And as the Gentiles submitted to baptism and received the Holy Spirit, they would become a part of the family. And so there wouldn't be any question whether or not we're going to eat with them. They're family. Paul also struggles with the law in Romans 7 and 10 and Galatians 3 and Galatians 5. In all of these passages, what is the background is the realization that Jesus had not abolished the Torah. It was all to be accomplished in some manner. Which brings us to verse 19, where Jesus addresses the consequences of the clarified claim. The logic of Jesus is actually very practical. If Jesus is the fulfillment, as he's claimed, and if the fulfillment means everything, and everything is established as true and realized, then morality, for one thing, should be changed. Jesus' claim is that those who follow Him are, in fact, following the law. 
And that's the basis for the followers to be called great in the kingdom. Anyone who denies his teaching and teaches others not to be following him will be called least in the kingdom. And those two words, great and least, are not levels of kingdom followers. No, following the Jewish and Hebraic contrasting of results, the least are the non-doers, the foolish, who are going to face eternal punishment. Those who relax the covenants, the commandments, and teach others to do the same are certainly not the wise who are both hearing and doing. So, let me go to Hebrews chapter 10. Wow, a lot of empty pews here this morning. A lot of Christians sitting at home not attending a worship service anywhere with their brothers and sisters in Christ. What does Hebrews 10 say? Do not, that's pretty emphatic, do not forsake the assembling together as some are in the habit of doing, but all the more so as the day approaches so that you can encourage one another. I have people all the time. Well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I'll go by what the book says. You go by what your feelings are. So, when Jesus says, when he's clarifying, and he says that their righteousness, meaning the behavior that conforms to the will of God as taught by Jesus, what N.T. Wright describes as covenant behavior, if their behavior does not greatly surpass the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they'll never enter the kingdom. And his language is emphatic. Now listen, because this is very important. If in that day, you wanted to pick an example of the pious. You know who you'd pick? The Pharisees. They weren't bad guys. In fact, they went above and beyond in all ways. And while some claim that the issue was internal versus external nature of their beliefs and lives, that really misses the point. Because many were sincere. Many died for what they believed. They weren't just going through the motions. So Jesus' emphasis is that true righteousness emerges out of communion. That's why the writer of Hebrews was so emphatic. Don't forsake the assembling of together. The emphasis on the sermon from the beginning to the end, is that true righteousness is kingdom righteousness. The right behavior of loyal, allegiant citizens. That's a real demand. And the command has to do with sanctification. For which we have a major responsibility. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. That's what the Bible says. It doesn't say wait for it to come. Just sit back and believe the right things and it'll all come. 
I'm sorry, I get cynical about that and I get sarcastic because the Bible does not teach that you can just believe and make it to heaven. It doesn't teach that. The teachings of Jesus are to shape our lives. Every bit of our lives. Jesus said that we're to love God and to love others with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, we cannot just go through the motions. We cannot just do the least that seems to be required. We are to use all of our resources. And the only checkoff is how close to the shape of the cross we are patterning our lives in living the cruciform life. At camp we have a cross at the back of the platform. And many times, Annie, you probably have seen me do it. Many times I would walk right to the edge of the stage. And I'd say, I have young people like you all ask me all the time, what's the least I have to do to be a Christian? It's like if this is a big cliff and falling over it is death, how close to the edge can I get and be okay? Why would I want to even live my life that way? Why not do everything I can to get as close to the cross as possible? To pattern myself as close to, like Jesus said, Take up your cross and follow me. So, sorry, one behind. Here's my challenge. We need to hear the call. We need to hear the call as followers of Jesus to both teach and to do all that Jesus commands and teaches. The Great Commission. Go ye, or as ye are going into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and what? Teach them to obey all that I have commanded. And interestingly, Jesus' life begins and ends With, at the beginning, he will be called Emmanuel. What's Emmanuel mean? God with us. And what does Jesus say just before he ascends? And lo, I will be with you. So, no loopholes, no technicalities. Just obedience. Now, you're not going to be perfect. And one little caveat. You can't earn salvation. But once you have given your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, all of your life, 24-7, 365, however many years you live, belongs to Him. And He's to be the Lord. Let's pray. Father God,
Last week we saw the importance of being salt and being light. Now help us to realize that Your Son Jesus came. He came to do what Israel was unable to do. And He did that by giving His life so that we could live. Help us now to look forward to Your return. And and Father, there might be some today who are not in 100% agreement with me on this, but man, you could make it right now or this afternoon if you want, and I'll be tickled pink. Help us to look forward to Your return, not want to put it off. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of invitation today, two verses, because he lives. Actually, it's good to say two verses because I could also say all of the verses <laughs> since there's only two. Uh, but because he lives. Let's stand together and let's sing. October, almost the end of 2023, 
And I can remember 1963 when I was 10 thinking that 2000 would never come. <laughs> All right, have a good week. May God bless you. Uh, we'll use our closing chorus as our closing prayer today. Uh, thank you, Lord. Okay, thanks, buddy. All right.
Hello. How are you doing? Sure. Good. How are you? Yeah. 
Yeah, sure. Are you and Mark can be okay. okay. Yeah, we can calm down after a few minutes. Can we just rotate it for you? Yeah. 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 When did Garrett have kids for you, David? All right, so I'll talk during the middle. Yeah, perfect. Maybe that one that we do. Sounds You all both got shirts, right? Yes. Oh, okay. Oh, shoot. This is still going. 